Hello and welcome to another episode of CISO Tradecraft, the podcast that provides you with the information, knowledge, and wisdom to be a more effective cybersecurity leader. My name is G. Mark Hardy. I'm your host for today, and we're going to be talking about how cyber protects revenue. Now, I know that may sound like an odd concept with cyber protecting revenue, especially when, you know, most organizations look at cyber as a cost center. However, it is entirely possible by the end of this episode, you'll have the tradecraft to know how it's done. Hey, last chance, if you like listening or watching CISO Tradecraft, on Wednesday, the 10th of January, ISACA Central Maryland Chapter will be hosting the 20th Annual Day with GMARC from 8 a.m. to 4 p.m. Eastern Time. You'll earn seven CPEs, very low cost relative to most other sources of uh, professional accreditation. It works for SAN certs, for ISACA certs, for ISC Square certs. They're sort of, and works pretty well. So it's a great way. How do we find out? Go to CISOTradeCraft.com slant ISACA, I-S-A-C-A. Sign up there. There's still a few seats left. And what a great way to go ahead and start your year out with a whole bunch of CPEs. Okay, so let's go back to our show and talk about what we really want to talk about today, which is how organizations can enhance their operational resilience. Now, remember, if the business is making money, then the business can afford to pay for cybersecurity. And if the business isn't making money, then it'll probably do everything it can to survive, including cutting cybersecurity. So how do we ensure that the business profits are protected? Now, to answer that question, we're going to do a deep dive on the Operational Resilience Framework, or ORF, version 2, which comes to us from the Global Resilience Federation. We'll have a link to them in our show notes, but their website's pretty straightforward, www.grf.org. ORF. Now, the vision of the ORF is to reduce operational risk, minimize service disruptions, and limit systemic impact from destructive attacks and adverse events. It was created by a task force of distinguished professionals, and most of the task force professionals are from the financial sector, which is the most regulated sector in the cyber industry. And members hail from companies like MasterCard, S&P Global, Citi, and others, and even one of our CISO Tradecraft podcast guests, Sunil Yu has contributed to that effort. So let's ask, what does it mean to be resilient? Resilience is the ability and capacity to withstand systemic shocks and adapt to emerging risks. A resilient organization effectively aligns its strategy, operations, management systems, governance structure, and decision support capabilities to uncover and adjust to continually changing risks endure disruptions to its primary earnings drivers, and create advantages over less adaptive competitors while understanding its role in the broader ecosystem. Now, the ORF is going to provide a template for achieving resilience by doing these things, reducing operational risk, minimizing service disruptions, and limiting the systemic impact from destructive attacks and adverse events. Okay, sounds good. Well, let's dig in a little bit and, and see what are we really looking to protect against. Cybersecurity attacks are a threat to most companies since they can cause material harm. And if we're going to become resilient against cybersecurity attacks, we need to have a few things. First of all, we need to anticipate and react to changes in cyber attacks. Now, while it's true that there are new cyber attacks each year, many of them haven't changed a whole lot, at least in terms of the uh, general form. So let's go back to episode 33 of CISO Tradecraft from June of 2021 where we talked about 10 steps of cyber incident response playbooks. And we talked about seven common attacks that we should expect. You know what? All these attacks are still relevant today. Quick review. Number one, external media. 
get an alert, identify someone, plug in a removable USB or an external device. Now, hopefully you block this now automatically, right? Number two, the attrition. The alert identifies brute force techniques to compromise systems or networks or applications. For example, attackers trying thousands of passwords or doing password spraying, trying to get into some account. Be able to detect and respond appropriately. A web attack, web app firewall, will alert which will, let's say, a SQL injection attack conducted against your website or web-based application. Again, seeing these still. Email compromise. It usually reports a phishing attack with a malicious link or attachment. We're still getting tons of these things. I don't know about you, but I've seen an awful lot that look like DocuSigns, and they're not. Um, and so be very careful also to help your users understand these things. Number five, impersonation. An attack that inserts malicious processes into something benign, like a rogue access point find on your company property. Now, also we're going to see impersonation take place in another form where you're going to have a hide, making it look like it's your executive, business email compromise, etc. Right now we're talking about devices that are in your enterprise that are trying to pretend to be something that they're not. Improper usage, attacks stemming from a user violation of IT properties and policies, right? When someone installing a file sharing software on a company laptop or having a remote control thing like a log me in. Hopefully none of that. And then the last one is physical loss, loss or theft of a physical device. For example, you lose your luggage containing a company laptop. These seven problems, as we identified two and a half plus years ago, still persist today. And this past year in 2023, two types of attacks became highly successful for bad actors. One is the social engineering of help desks to reset account passwords. Why bother to hammer away and try to brute force or password spray when you can just call up the help desk and say, Hi, I am Joe the admin and I need my account password reset. Bing! I mean, that's what crept up some of the biggest casinos. The second attack was bad actors targeting identity and access management. Companies like Okta had major breaches, unfortunately, which allowed bad actors to overcome some of the MFA defenses. Now, given all of these attacks, we just don't want organizations to survive them. We want to be able to evolve past them. Now, resilience, as we mentioned earlier, is essentially the ability to take a hit and keep on going. That's similar, but not quite the same of another concept you might have heard called anti-fragile. Now, it was coined by the author Nassim Nicholas Taleb in his 2012 book, Anti-Fragile, Things That Can Gain From Disorder. And he writes, Some things benefit from shocks. They thrive and grow when exposed to volatility, randomness, disorder, and stressors, and love adventure, risk, and uncertainty. Yet in spite of the ubiquity of the phenomenon, there is no word for the exact opposite of fragile. So let us call it anti-fragile. Anti-fragility is beyond resilience or robustness. The resilient resists shocks and stays the same. The anti-fragile gets better. Hmm. What's an example? How about oh, lifting weights? When you do weight-bearing exercise, you're going to cause micro-tears in your muscle tissue. Now, normally you think that would be a bad thing. However, our physiology is such that when our muscles repair themselves, they gain a little more strength. And thus, over time, with proper exercise and nutrition, we can gain strength through the act of, well, causing a lot of small damages. Now, is there a cyber equivalent? I would argue yes. Consider, like, we go back to classic antivirus software. Each time a new sample of malware is detected, it's captured, analyzed, the signature is added to the tool, and then the databases are updated, and now you're resistant to that. Now, granted, you don't want to be the only entity taking hits from all these new attacks, but this overall system and the ecosystem gains strength as a result of taking hits and improving defenses. Now, your challenge 
as a security leader is to inculcate that same attitude in your teams. Instead of a successful attack being a cause for angst, lost bonuses, maybe firings, encourage your people to improve defenses by, well, adding defense to that attack to their playbook. And yes, you do take hits over time. Nobody bats a thousand, but you're going to get better over time. Like the NIST cybersecurity model, it would be best to protect 100% of the time, but since that's not realistic, we work on the detect, respond, recover side of the model to build resilience. Now, consider that a business's ability to respond and overcome adversity, circumstances, while operating is the difference between business disruption and business continuity. Consider that a business's ability to respond to and overcome adverse circumstances while operating is the difference between business disruption and business continuity. Going back to the Operational Resilience Framework, remember ORF, it offers a following for those who choose to implement it. Utilizing the ORF and its accompanying maturity model, organizations can gain a comprehensive understanding of their business critical and operational critical services. Map out the systems and processes supporting these services. Develop resilient systems that deliver operations-critical services in pre-designed impaired states during a crisis, and effectively test resilience plans both internally and with external stakeholders. Those are some worthwhile goals. And since you can't protect what you don't know and understand, let's start with some foundational principles. The ORF outlines a seven-step path to operational resilience. Number one, first, you should implement industry-recognized risk management, information technology, and cybersecurity control frameworks. Now, don't invent your own. I don't care how smart you are, but when so many people out there have created things like NIST and ISO, it spells us all out for you. Instead, use those industry best practices to perform self-assessments at a minimum. The problem with rolling your own, of course, is that if you ever do have a problem or a breach, and breaches happen, somebody from the outside comes in and they're going to say, hey, no matter how smart you thought you were, you probably should have used something that was written by somebody else. So there's a little bit of uh, protection in that for you as well. But if you're going to use these industry best practices to organize your defenses or even do self-assessment, you're going to need some executive sponsorship. Why? Because the CIO can task IT developers a lot more easily than the CISO, since developers are accountable to the CIO, but rather the Rarely do they report to the CISO. And finally, don't forget about establishing good governance structures. You need to document policies, procedures, and other mechanisms to follow. And that way, if the CIO or some other executive leaves, the change isn't temporary. It survives. And then that becomes part of the organization's DNA. So the first one we're going to do, industry-recognized frameworks. Number two, second step understand the organization's role in the ecosystem. Okay, well, what do I mean by that? The inventory of business services must be documented. All right, fine. Sounds like a government document, right? It's all passive voice, but the idea is, let's change it. You must document an inventory of business services. What is it that you do that contributes to the company's revenue in the IT world? And if we're doing things that aren't contributing to revenue, that aren't helping the organization, maybe we need to stop doing it. And if it is contributing to the organization's revenue, we really, really, really need to protect that. And so how do we go ahead and prioritize? These business services must be designated as operations critical, business critical, or all other services. Now, not everything's going to be treated the same. You might have 5,000 applications, but only 200 are critical, then those are the ones you prioritize. 
Customers, partners, and counterparties must be identified and grouped by common characteristics relevant to service delivery prioritization. Group them. Why? Don't treat everybody like a snowflake. Not everybody's unique. Yeah, they sort of are, but rather by putting together these sort of a, uh, themes or commonalities, we can then help more parties faster by being able to go ahead and restore a service set that we know is going to benefit this entire set of people. And lastly, quote, priority level for service delivery must be assigned to each defined customer, partner, and counterparty group for each operational critical and business critical service. Okay, that sounds like a lot, but let's break it down a little bit. We've got service delivery priority, low, medium, high. That sounds like a thing like that. Each defined customer, we ought to know where our customers are, right? Our partners and counterparties, somebody with whom we're going to be working with. For example, who supports first? The biggest customer, the one that generates the most revenue? Absolutely. What about we have a business partner that we absolutely need to go ahead and make that relationship? They go up first. They get the highest level of support. But also remember, there's a business question here. There may be contractual obligations that you have to review. So don't make promises from an IT security perspective that are not backed up by business documents. Now, after we've gone ahead and selected our framework, number one, and understand our role in the ecosystem, number two, we're going to, on the third step, define the minimum viable service levels for each operations critical and business critical service. Now to do so, we're going to identify the internal processes that support service delivery and enumerate the types of service disruptions, regardless of root cause, that might impact these critical processes. Now note that what is critical for one customer may not be as important for another, so this is not a monolithic exercise. Remember in the previous step where we signed a priority level for service delivery for each customer, partner, counterparty? It's a level of granularity you need to ensure that you can reflect the business priorities when operating at less than 100% capacity. Remember, we're not talking about instantly restoring all possible services. We're identifying what's the least we could get away with for some period of time and not lose our customer or violate our service level agreements. Now, the fourth step in the ORF is to establish service delivery objectives for each operation's critical and business critical service. Let's dive into this because now we're starting to actually see stuff. To define objectives for service delivery, you're going to start by establishing target operational service levels, or in other words, what technology capabilities are necessary to achieve the business objectives. We can look at people, process, technology, vendors, suppliers, but this is the part of the model when we change our focus from purely business objectives to include technical requirement. Next, we'll define service delivery objectives for each operational critical and business critical service. Ask if they're achievable. For example, if the business offers to have services restored in four hours, and the IT department knows it takes 12 hours to restore from tape backups, there's a disconnect. So level set these expectations. Then consider minimum viable service levels required by customers, partners, and counterparties, and identified service dependencies. Okay, what do I mean? Here's an example. The Acme Corporation usually will process 20,000 customers' transactions per hour. However, it has a service level agreement to perform at least 15,000 transactions per hour. If you do 20, and on you. But you're guaranteed to do 15. But during a severe incident, you might have a degraded capability that offers will be able to do only 9,000 transactions per hour. And we might put that in our contract as well as a form of a service level agreement saying, oh, not everything is perfect, but 
in degraded conditions, we might do that. And when we think about minimum viable service levels, we go beyond just is it up or is it down discussions to defining these incremental capabilities. This is the shift from incident response, which is get them all back up and running, to operational resilience, which means what does it take to keep going even while you're taking a hit? Now, we can define multiple levels of service. So unrestricted operations, as we defined, are 20000 an hour. Our standard SLA, service level agreement, will be 15000 an hour, and our minimum viable service level may be 9000 an hour. Okay, fine, great. But what happens if our capacity goes even below that? We have to prioritize and do it in advance of who gets what. For example, customers A and B may be high priority and customer C may be yeah, lower medium priority. If the minimum viable service level for each is 3,000 per hour and our capacity gets reduced to 6,000, guess who's not getting their transaction service? The low to medium priority customer C. Don't share the pain across all customers equally. It's a good way to lose business. If someone's paying extra for more resilience, deliver it. Now, note that even your cell phone carrier will likely throttle your data beyond a certain point unless you're a higher-paying business customer. We see this out there. And then finally, define data restoration objectives to meet service delivery objectives for each critical data set component. Let's say restore the service but lost two days of data. How will the business re-enter the data for the last two days? How long is that going to take? So be sure to set objectives with the business units so they understand the impact. Now, the fifth step of the ORF states is to preserve the data sets necessary to support operations-critical and business-critical services. Now, typically when you think about backups, you think of data, right? Well, if you can restore the data but can't restore the systems that run the data, you're still not operating. Two considerations here. First, the strategy calls for immutable or read-only backups. For example, if ransomware can corrupt both your operational, your backup sets, you're probably going to be shopping for Bitcoin. Secondly, the critical data sets must include not only consumer and business data, but the applications, systems, networks, core infrastructure services, and configurations required to restore the services, even if it's in an impaired state. Do you have your active directory backed up in an immutable form? Now, if you read up on how Maersk dealt with NotPetya, you'll see the spectacular implications of potentially losing your global AD. Consider also another key point here is to make sure you understand your data retention requirements. Are they 30 days, a year, seven years, etc.? And if you don't know them, and you got to guess, you'll probably guess wrong. So if you have any questions about this, talk to your legal team for advice. The sixth step in the ORF state to implement processes to enable recovery and restoration of operations-critical and business-critical services to meet your service delivery objectives. Now it's starting to come together. Think about this scenario. If everything is completely down, what systems do you have to bring back first? What system dependencies are there? It might seem like bringing back the CRM tool is key, but if no one can authenticate to log in, that service is still disrupted. So remember, Incident response plans must be reviewed at least annually. An update is required to address the risk of disruption or impairment to operational critical and business critical services. We're hearing that a lot now. When you update your IR plans, be sure to consult with your legal team because they can help you craft language that will protect the organization. For example, you may write a policy that says, we shall respond in four hours. Now, the lawyers may want to change that, so we will make a reasonable best effort. 
but they will not guarantee responding to an incident within four hours, and that avoids some potential liability. Now, the seventh and last step of the ORF is to independently evaluate design and test periodically. Your disaster recovery plan may look good on paper, but let's see if it goes according to plan if I pull this Ethernet cable. On this one, there's a couple of key nuggets to understand. The team that designed a control shouldn't be the one to test it. It's best to have an independent team, and this is why we usually see external auditors. And next, for any control failures identified by independent testing, you need to create a remediation plan, which is closely monitored to ensure that issues go away. If you log issues on a risk register that don't go away and you have a remediation plan that says they do, then you're just creating legal liabilities for the organization. Finally, don't forget to compare your organization against best practices in your industry. The industry average is to restore in seven days, but takes you 30 days. You're not going to be on high ground when the regulators take a look at your documents. Okay, wow. We hope you've enjoyed learning how to operationalize resilience from us here at CISO Tradecraft and the Operational Resilience Framework. Remember the seven steps. Number one. Implement industry-recognized risk management, information technology, and cybersecurity control frameworks. Number two, understand the organization's role in the ecosystem. Number three, define the minimum viable service level objectives for each operations-critical and business-critical service. Number four, establish service delivery objectives for each operations-critical and business-critical service. Number five, preserve the data sets necessary to support operations-critical and business-critical services. Number six, implement processes to enable recovery and restoration of operations-critical and business-critical services to meet your service delivery objectives. And then number seven, independently evaluate design and test periodically. Now, here at CISA Tradecraft, we create weekly podcasts, as you know, to help our listeners increase their knowledge on cybersecurity. Now, if you love learning from us, try hiring us for some consulting services. CISO Tradecraft has a variety of virtual CISO services that we can offer, such as helping you create or update your cybersecurity strategy leading tabletop exercises with executives to simulate how your organization would respond to a cyber attack, performing process improvement activities to fix processes that need improvement such as third-party procurement, vulnerability management, or third-party risk assessments. And additionally, we also perform custom coaching to help you become a stronger CISO. If any of these items are something you'd like to outsource or get help on, reach out to us by going to CISOTradeCraft.com and leave us a comment or contact us privately on LinkedIn. So thanks again for listening to us. If you want to learn more, take a look at the link to the ORF in the show notes and wish you the only best in your CISO trade craft. Remember, if you find this episode helpful, share it with your friends and colleagues. And also, if you'd like CISO trade craft to help your organization with any consulting services, yeah, give us a call. Thanks again. And until next time, this is your host, G. Mark Hardy. Stay safe out there.